Well, thanks everyone for coming. This is a pretty nice turnout on a Friday afternoon. Um, so my talk is on um, investigating the connection between neighborhoods and health, and more specifically between neighborhood poverty and mortality risk. And I'm coming from a longitudinal perspective using panel data that allows us to address some of the issues of bias in observational studies that we usually would not be able to do with cross-sectional um, analyses. Um, and I think this is important, um, not only of, of interest methodologically or from an academic perspective, I think it's important from a policy perspective because um, policy and interventions or the anticipated um, impacts of policy and interventions really rely on um, our understanding of the causal connection, connection between two factors rather than the associational connection. And I think that because um, random assignments of neighborhood context is rather you know, infeasible, at least with uh, respect in a large scale um, and very cost prohibitive, um, we really need to rely on observational studies and observational analyses. Um, and so it's really incumbent upon us to um, try at least as best as we can to, co to recover as close as we can the, the causal effects of neighborhood context on health. And hopefully the study um, is uh, a step in that direction. So this is just an outline of my talk. I'm just going to first briefly give um, a background on neighborhood effects um, on health and what we know um, about it currently. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the sources of bias in observational studies, um, just to give you a little bit of impetus um, behind the motivation of the study. And then I'm going to talk about moral structure modeling, um, which is the strategy that I am using in this study. Um, and then finally, st the actual study itself and um, we'll conclude with future directions in a Q&A session. So just give a bit of a roadmap of where I'm heading. So a quick background on neighborhood effects um, on health. And I know a lot of you already are familiar with this literature. So do neighborhoods um, affect individual and population health? Well, it's been observed that exposures to risks and the distributions of diseases are patterned spatially. And you can imagine if you were to reside in a neighborhood that looks um, something on the left, <laughs> you would be um, exposed to very different types of risks um, and hazards as well as opportunities and resources, very different from um, compared to um, were you to live in um, an environment, something on the right. And there's been a growing body of evidence <coughs> that has linked neighborhood context to health, and not surprisingly, more disadvantaged environments are associated with more adverse health outcomes. And because neighborhoods are a distal determinant, um, it can affect multiple um, types of health outcomes through multiple pathways. So one way neighborhoods can affect health is through a direct pathway. So for example, in more disadvantaged um, environments, <coughs> there's a um, higher uh, rate of crime. And so you may be more likely to not only be um, harmed physically or bodily with direct impacts of, of crime, but also the chronic exposure to these stressful environments can have adverse health outcomes. Um, and more disadvantaged environments have higher pollutants because of their proximity to um, sources of pollution and power plants. And residents in more disadvantaged environments are more likely to be exposed to toxins such as molds and asbestos. And there's also noise pollution in more disadvantaged environments. So these are the direct effects, or at least some of the direct effects. And neighborhood environments can also affect um, your health um, indirectly. And obviously one way to affect health is through um, influencing your health behaviors. So in more disadvantaged environments, um, there are more advertising for liquor and smoking. Um, there's, more, there's higher um, amounts of uh, liquor outlets 
which can influence your propensity to engage in these types of behaviors. Um, food deserts has been a very hot topic lately in terms in, in the disadvantaged environments. So there's lack of supermarkets, which provide uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and more healthy foods, um, and more prevalence of convenience stores with high calorie content and a lack of nutrition. So that affects um, the types of foods you eat. Um, in more disadvantaged uh, environments, also the lack of um, public facilities or the lack of facilities that are well kept and maintained and not dangerous can dissuade you to engage in physical activity and the distances to quality health services um, may dissuade you to engage in um, health. <laughs> uh, and I think one of the most important indirect pathway through which neighborhood context affects health is through its influences on socioeconomic attainment. So in more disadvantaged environments, the adolescents are more likely to have unwed teenage pregnancies, um, their lower quality of schooling in more disadvantaged environments, higher dropout rates, lower educational attainment, and higher unemployment rates. And even if you're employed, it's usually in lower paying jobs that constrain your economic opportunities in the future and throughout the life course. So these are just a couple of pathways to which neighborhoods are envisioned to affect health. And I think despite the intuition behind this that you know, we're, not, we're not on islands um, and that we are influenced, influenced by the social and physical context in which we are embedded, I think that it has been a, a, a challenge for researchers to really recover the actual impact of neighborhood context per se on um, a very, uh, various outcomes, including health outcomes. And um, it's really based because of observational studies and this is not unique to neighborhood effects on health, but it, I think it's a particularly salient aspect for some reason, um, but it is a source of bias in all observational studies, and that is unreserved heterogeneity. Because the whole idea is, is neighbor, do, does neighborhood context in, affect health independent of individual level characteristics? So we don't want to count for whether you are poor or whether you're unemployed, and um, does, does the context in which you reside affect you um, on top of that? But those who are um, poor and unemployed are more likely to reside in more disadvantaged environments. So how do we disentangle that? And, and sometimes people say we can never do that. It's, it's impossible because there's always something that we're not accounting for. So this is an issue of unreserved heterogeneity. So the result of this is a bias upwards of neighborhood effects. So what do I mean by this? It means that what we are recovering from observational estimates of neighbor effects are really larger than what the true impact is. So neighbor effects are actually smaller than what we are measuring it as. So we're overestimating the impacts in neighbor context on health. But on the, on the flip side, um, oh wait, oh, I forgot the study, I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> in this slide, um, there's been several, several studies that have examined or addressed the issue of unobserved confounding um, in neighborhood, neighborhoods' effects, not just on, on health. And the strategies they've utilized um, include fixed effect uh, models, which account for all unobserved um, characteristics that, that um, do not change across time. So even though you don't have that in your data set per se, it's accounted for. Instrumental variables um, and then sensitivity analyses. And all of these studies have found a statistically significant um, connection between neighbor context and their outcome of interest. So even when we try to sort of address these unobserved confounding, we have found that there's still an association between neighbor context um, and the outcome. So this is what I was anticipating. So <coughs> um, I think despite all the um, focus on the 
um, upward bias of neighbor effects that we're so worried on overestimating the impacts in our neighbor context on health. Um, neighborhoods um, exposure um, is very difficult to, to um, capture because it's time varying and it's throughout the life course. It begins at birth. And you can see from this conceptual diagram that prior neighbor exposure, for example, during childhood can um, influence um, social dynamic status. But in conventional regression analyses using cross-sectional analyses or cross-sectional data, what we're really modeling is this um, idea, is that everything happens at once and that socioeconomic status is just confounding neighborhood context. And so we control for that. We include that in the regression model. But at the same time, when we do that, we negate the actual effect of prior neighborhood context, which may have influenced your present socioeconomic attainment. So with this, what's happening is that we have a downward bias when we do conventional regression estimates of neighborhood effects um, on health. So this is the issue of over-control that in reality, the, the actual impact and neighborhood effects on health are actually larger than what we are estimating in our observational cross-sectional analyses. So I'm looking at the t time. Um, so, so what is the net direction um, of bias? I mean, it's really hard to say because we have, you know, a bias um, upwards due to undeserved confounding. And then on the flip side, we have bias downwards to this overadjustment of some of these possible mediators, time-varying mediators. So if we, if we don't control for, for some, you know, um, um, socioeconomic status, for example, then everyone's going to criticize us for not controlling for it. And always, you know, the effects are too big, the estimates are too big. But then when we do control for it, then we're subject to the other source of bias, that we're over-controlling for some of these mediating aspects. So <laughs> what are we to do? I mean, it seems like we're between a rock and a hard place. So, sorry. So <clears throat> there's um, a relatively new strategy called model structural modeling, which sort of addresses, or which addresses this issue of simultaneous confounding and mediating of time-varying variables. And so the whole idea of modern structure modeling is instead of just focusing on the confounding aspect of SES, um, we also account for also the mediating aspect that prior um, SES has been influenced by neighbor context, that the neighbor context influenced SES. So it's just kind of like a cyclical thing. And we can do that through modern structure modeling. So when is it applicable? When should we apply a model structural modeling strategy? Well, it's useful under two conditions. First condition is that there is a time-dependent covariate that predicts the outcome of interest, um, in this case health, and subsequent treatments, in this case neighborhood context or neighborhood poverty. And the second condition is that past treatment, past neighborhood context, predicts the current covariate value. So past neighborhood context predicts current SES. So condition A, or 1A, um, a time-dependent covariate predicts the outcome of interest. You see that you have prior SES <coughs> um, predicts health status, and also subsequent SES predicts health status because it's time-varying across the life course. And the second part of uh, the first condition is that a time-dependent covariate predicts the subsequent treatments. So <clears throat> prior SES affects um, neighbor contacts at K minus 1, and then SES at K predicts neighbor contacts at time K. And then the second condition is that past treatment predicts the current covariate value. So you can imagine childhood contacts. Um, child neighborhood context predicts adult socioeconomic attainment. 
everyone with me so far? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so the idea behind Martyr Structure Modeling is that instead of adjusting for confounding through stratification, which leads to over-adjustment of these potential mediators, we adjust for confounding by weighting observations by the inverse probability for being exposed to neighbor contacts observed. And these estimated probabilities um, are a function of time-varying factors and past neighborhood context, which we'll detail a little bit more later on. So what's the intuition behind the MSM weights? Well, it, it upweights individuals whose neighborhood exposure is underrepresented compared to what we would be expected to find through random assignment. And then it downweights individuals whose exposure is overrepresented. So in the end, we, we end up with this sort of pseudo-population um, distribution that resembles random assignment, or sequential random assignment. So this is actually going to be the actual study that applies to structural modeling. And I had two objectors, or yeah, two objectives in this study. And the first one is to investigate the link between neighborhood poverty and mortality risk while accounting for the simultaneous confounding and meeting effects of the time-varying variables. So this is addresses um, the issue of over-control through marginal structural modeling. Because we have both, um, we're accounting for the SES factors, they're both confounding and mediating, and we're not, we're not over-controlling for the mediating characteristics of these time-varying confounders. And then the second objective is to utilize sensitivity analysis to determine the extent to which the results of AIM-1 are sensitive to unobserved confounding. And that addresses the issue of, of under-control. So the first aim is addresses the issue of over-control. The second aim addresses the issue of under-control. The data um, that I use for the study is the panel study of Econ Dynamics. Um, we use data from 1990 to 2007. And the PSID is a really, really cool data set. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was started in 1968 um, and approximately 6,000 families um, nationally representative. And what's cool about this is that it, so it follows these families across the life course, but not only follows these families, but when the children um, within these families move out, um, it follows them. And then it collects people who marry into the PSID family. So now it's like thousands, you know, three generations of, of families that's naturally representative of the non-immigrant population. Because in 1968, there weren't a lot of immigrants um, in the United States back then. Um, so uh, we use, um, again, 1990 data and then every odd year subsequently, because um, after 1997, the PSID was collected every other year, and we want to be consistent in terms of our um, periods of, of, of time. Um, it's also geocoded, so we know the, where, where um, the response reside in every um, single time period that they were observed. And we restrict our analyses to heads and spouses aged 18 over at baseline in 1990, to black and white individuals, again, because we're in a lot of Hispanics or Asians. Um, and with complete information in 1990, 1991, and 1993. <coughs> and 1990 is the baseline, so we want all complete information from that. Um, in 1991, um, predicts 1993 exposure to neighborhood poverty. So you want complete information for that. And 1993 is actually the start of our neighborhood exposure time frame. So we end up with approximately 35,000 person-year observations with um, 6,474 um, at baseline, 1990. So we have a median number of observations of eight per person throughout this um, time period. So a lot of data. Our health outcome of interest is risk of overall mortality 
um, which is measured um, by binary variable of death at time t. And we have approximately 50% of our baseline sample died by 2009. And uh, so the first risk of death is in 1995 because the first exposure time period is um, neighbor context in 1993. And you can see that approximately 2 to 3% of um, persons who are respondents at risk um, died between each time period. So our neighborhood variable, we um, define neighborhoods as census tracts, which is usually conventional in national, um, national studies. Um, and we base that on the 1990, 2000, and then the 2000 census, and the 2005 to 2009 uh, American Community Survey, which just came out. Um, so the boundaries tend to change across the decennial census, um, but we use a geolytics CD so that all the boundaries uh, all the neighbor boundaries across these time frame is normalized to 2,000 boundaries. So we are not mixing, you know, differences of boundaries and compositions um, with of differences in the actual context of neighborhoods across time. And between um, those years, we interpolate. Um, and after, uh, so 2005 and 2007, we use the average of that for 2007 neighborhood context. So then we extrapolate up to 2007, actually. Um, so the variable or the context of interest is neighborhood poverty, which we specify as continuous, um, with the piecewise linear spline um, with not at 20%. So this allows, so it's still a linear relationship that we're specifying, but this allows the slope from 0 to 20% to differ between the slope of uh, from 20 and upwards. So like a kink, allows for a kink. Um, in our specifications, we have two for neighbor context, just um, neighbor poverty as measured at t minus one. So this is under the assumption that only prior um, neighbor poverty um, impacts mortality risk. Pretty strong assumption. And our second specification is a running mean from 1993 to t minus one. So this, uh, this is more of a long time measure of neighborhood context. These are the variables um, in our model. So we have kind of two sets. The first set is a non-time varying um, covariance, which includes race and gender, which is obviously, hopefully, most of the time, um, non-time varying. But we also have some hypothetically, um, conceptually, time-varying variables that we use as baseline, as non-time-varying. And this includes education, wealth, self-rated health, age, marital status, human household, income, and labor force status. Um, so a pretty good set of baseline controls. And the time-varying covariates that we include are age, marital status, human household, income, and labor force status. So this is just a sample statistics really quickly, just um, pretty much standard. 12% um, of our sample is black, or a little bit half is female. Um, with respect to our time-varying variables, for at, measured at the first exposure period, 1993, 12% um, is the average neighborhood poverty um, level, and an average age of 49. So it's not, it's not a young sample, per se. So conceptually, this is our analytical strategy. So we have um, time-varying treatment, which is neighborhood context. And we, we really defined the time frame in which neighborhood context is measured from 1993 to uh, 2007. And I think this is um, one of the strengths of our study because a lot of cross-section analysis, you know, you, it measures that single point in time, but you really don't know how to interpret the estimate. Is it just an instantaneous exposure to neighborhood context that they're trying to assess? Or is it, um, you know, long-term exposure that they're assuming that there's no variation in the histories of the exposure to neighborhood context? So at least here, we're, we're, we're trying to find the, the exposure measure. 
and we try to, at baseline, control for all the difference, compositional differences. And we're assessing the lagged effect of neighborhood contacts on subsequent mortality risk in the next time period. Sure. So how is this um, different from a sort of general linear mixed model where you have time-varying covariance? We usually include the time-varying covariance in the, um, in the outcome model, right? You would, I mean, it, it's sort of, a, you know, what I'm thinking of is a sort of more traditional repeated measures model where you have for each given person multiple values for mm -hmm. exposure varying over mm -hmm. time, and then you have a set of covariates that are fixed, mm -hmm. and then you have a set of covariates that are, are time-varying. Time right. So, um, so you actually have possible multiple outcome measures attached to all of this, because, you know, it could be some, it's hard to die several times, but Sure. So, so it's, it's it's like a pooled regression analysis generally with time varying covariates, um, and there's been studies that have actually done that um, and actually compared that to a martyr structural modeling strategy. Um, Magda Serta, um, who is um, one of Anna's postdocs at Michigan, um, examined that in the context of alcohol um, use and binge drinking. Um, so I think that's what the type of model that you are um, addressing. And I actually do a more naive model, which is very similar, with multiple um, um, measures of time-varying variables included in the outcome model. Um, and then we're going to compare the strategy. One of the things that you have to be careful about um, in reading the literature in MSMs is that, you know, intuitively we would like to compare the MSM model results with the non-MSM model results. And we're going to see if they're, they're different, significantly different or not. But MSM uh, models are marginal models, and more traditional models are conditional models. And they have very different interpretations, um, even with the absence of um, the situation of, of time-varying confounding and mediating, the results would differ, even when they're specified correctly. And Kaufman, Jay Kaufman, actually wrote a pretty nice piece of paper about that and about um, trying not to um, infer too much on the differences between the two. The only <coughs> situation in which marginal models and conditional models would be equivalent would be when the uh, outcomes are rare. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we chose mortality, because mortality is sufficiently rare so that M MSMs and conditional models are equivalent in terms of the interpretation. Thanks for the question, though. <laughs> So um, just a reminder, um, the first aim of the study is to account for the simultaneous confounding and mediating effects of time-varying factors. So in a margin structural model, there's, there's two stages. In the first stage, we generate the weights. And we generate the inverse probability training weights by predicting the probability residing in a level of neighborhood poverty observed at time t as a function of time-varying covariates, non-time-varying baseline covariates, and past neighborhood history. And the weight at time t is the cumulative product, um, that's what the pi is, um, from baseline, all the way from baseline up to time t. So in the denominator, in our case, <coughs> it's going to be predicted, um, neighborhood poverty is going to be predicted as a function of baseline covariates um, that we listed. So for status at t minus 1, SES at t, in neighborhood poverty at t minus 1. And this is the actual IPT weight in itself. Most researchers um, add on the numerator, which is very similar, um, exactly the same, except that it excludes the time-varying covariates because um, this inclusion um, makes um, the estimates more efficient. So, so how did we estimate... <laughs> the first stage weight. We spent a lot of time um, on, on this. Um, and we specify neighborhood um, poverty as a continuous random variable between 0 and 1. And we use a beta regression um, and predict the density function of neighborhood poverty. So why, why a beta regression? Um, it's because uh, when we, uh, in preliminary analysis, when we just 
just try to predict OLS neighbor poverty or log normal neighbor poverty, it, we found that it wasn't very predictive for neighbor context. And a beta density with a beta regression function um, allows for a more flexible presentation of the shape of neighborhood poverty. And this is the density estimates compared of the predicted ones that's in red compared to the actual density of neighbor poverty that is observed. And you can see that I think we did a pretty good job in estimating or predicting neighborhood poverty. And if you compare that to what we had with the log normal, for example, it was like night and day difference. And because um, of attrition issues, we also generate censoring weights, which are similar um, in our analysis to the IPT weights. We predict the probability of being censored uh, at time t, year t. And it's uh, censored if it's missing any outcome variable or covariate. Um, and once you're censored, once you're missing a covariate, for example, you're always going to be censored. So you can't come back into the study. Um, and, and you're censored at 2009 if death is not observed. And we have approximately 16,000 um, observations that were censored. So this is just um, very analogous to the IPT weights, except we can use a logit model instead. Um, it's an, I guess it's an analytic decision because once you're missing a weight, um, you cannot, you cannot um, generate subsequent weights because the weight at time t is a product of all the previous weights. Right, so then it's missing. So you, don't, you can interpolate it, I guess. Um, you know, so it's just an easier way to do it. So that's the first stage. That's, that's generating the weights to account for the confounding aspects of, of these SES measures. And in the second stage, we, we estimate the outcome um, model. And so we're going to do a discrete hazard um, by a pool logistic. And this comes with Angela's question. So the first one is MSM pool logistic, which does not include um, the time-varying SES measures because um, it's already accounted for in the weights. So it only includes the actual exposure, neighbor poverty, and the baseline covariates. And then we weighted by the product of the actual IPT weights, the censoring weights, and the PSID survey weights. So again, um, we don't include the time variant covariates already controlled for. And if we include that, it's over-adjusting. And we compare it to the naive pool logistic, which includes the time during SES measures as well as the baseline covariates. And we weight that by just the censoring and the PSID weights. So what do we get? <coughs> this is the result for neighbor poverty at, at just time t minus 1, so just a single point of neighbor poverty. And we don't get much. <laughs> we, we don't find any association for the naive model, very close to the null, at both um, uh, both sections of the splines from 0 to 20% and 20% onwards. For the MSM model, we see somewhat suggestive of, of a positive association between neighbor poverty and mortality risk, but it's very highly non-significant. So it's just a lot of noise, perhaps. So for this respect, we don't find any association at all. In terms of our um, specifying neighbor context as the running average, for the naive estimate, again, we still find no significant association, <coughs> very close to nil. For the MSN, however, in the first um, segment of the spline from 0 to 20%, we find no connection between increased neighbor poverty and mortality risk. But after the 20% threshold, we see that a 10 percentage point increase in neighborhood poverty is associated with an 81% increase in the odds <coughs> of risk to mortality. And that's very highly statistically significant. So these are very different sort of inferences between the MSM model 
in the naive or conventional models. And this is in the same, this is in the direction that we expect because we are expecting that the naive model is over-adjusting for these um, time-varying um, factors that are confoundings, but also confounders, but also mediators. And the NMSM models are not doing that. So that's our first aim. And in our second aim, um, we wanted to um, do a sensitive analysis against unobserved confounding. So the first aim was all about um, over-adjusting. And then the second aim is about are we under-adjusting, possibly. So <clears throat> when we have an unmeasured confounder, to impact the actual effect estimates, it has to be correlated to neighbor poverty and mortality. So it has to be correlated to the treatment of interest and has to be correlated to the outcome. Neither can be zero. And obviously, we don't have this hypothetical confounder. It's not measured. It's not in your data set. Otherwise, we wouldn't include it. But what we can do is generate um, a level of correlation, delta, between neighbor poverty and this un hypothetical unmeasured confounder. And we can generate a level of correlation of alpha between mortality and the hypothetical confounder. And we can see how strong um, these correlations levels have to be of this unmeasured hypothetical confounder to change our inferences. So the steps for sensitivity analysis. <clears throat> so what we were trying to assess is what level of unreserved confounding is required to attenuate estimates and change their, our results. And I will say we're going to compare it to the one result that is statistically significant, the 20% spline of average labor poverty. So we choose these levels of correlations, delta and alpha, um, based on the covariance in the model. Because it's a really abstract correlation levels, I think, and we don't know what um, is feasible and what is not feasible. So we're, we're, we're taking those levels from the actual covariate correlations um, in our model. And then we simulate this correlation structure. We re-estimate the first stage model and the second stage outcome model with this uh, additional hypothetical um, confounder. Um, and if it's still significant, our results, then we increase the, the, the correlation level um, to the point where um, our results are no longer statistically significant. And if our results are initially statistically significant, then we decrease it to see at what point um, <coughs> it becomes statistically significant. So this is the result of our sensitivity analysis for the spline model. Um, so the odds ratios um, here, the actual odds ratios, I didn't label it, um, re, uh, reflects the odds ratio for the spline model of the average number of poverty um, after 20% threshold point. Um, so we have a correlation level of negative 0.05 to negative 0.3. So they're both negative, which induces a positive um, bias. So you see that all the estimates are attenuated from around 1.8. And the ones in orange are the ones that are statistically significant still. So, for example, if we have a correlation of um, negative 0.15 and negative 1.5, that, and we include that in the model, uh, again, when we estimated, our estimates would be attenuated from like approximately 1.8 to 1.6, but it still would be statistically significant at the 5% level. And these are statistically significant. Um, at the 10% level, and all of these are just, just marginally non-significant at the 5% level. But again, you know, negative 0.05, is that strong? Negative 0.3, is that strong? How do we connect that to real-life situations? So the correlation between income and mortality is negative 0.05, and the correlation between income and neighbor poverty is negative 0.19. So <sighs> income and mortality is the first row, negative 0.105, or negative 0.05, and negative 0.19 would be um, around here somewhere. So you can imagine that if we had a hypothetical confounder that is strongly related to mortality and income, neighborhood poverty as income, then we would still find a significant connection between neighborhood poverty um, and health. So, you know, income, you know, it's not like a trivial thing. Education. 
more strongly correlated to mortality, luckily negatively, negatively, which is good for us, and more strongly correlated um, to neighbor poverty negatively um, too. And that would be negative 0.11, a little bit below here, and negative 0.26, like somewhere around here. Um, so it's on the margin, because the, around this area, this is not so significant, but and these two are. Um, and when I actually did the sensitive analysis for these actual values, um, it was statistically non-significant, but um, the p-value was around 0.055, so on the margin um, for that. So, you know, you know, income is okay, correlation level, education, which is more highly correlated. Um, so if you had something as strong as that, then we would change our inferences. So <clears throat> what's the summary um, for, these, for this analysis? Well, the first one is that long-time measures are strong, have a strong connection um, than um, single-point measures in terms of neighbor contacts and health. And this is consistent with other studies that compare um, estimates of neighborhood contacts between single-point measures and long-time measures. And, um, <coughs> um, and it makes intuitive sense because single-point measures exposure, you don't really know what it's measuring. There's a lot of heterogeneity in the history of exposure. And using more long-time measure kind of evens out, and it's more likely that these long-term averages or more consistent exposures to the context. Um, second one is naive models underestimate the connection between neighbor poverty and mortality risk. And we see that with the uh, um, <clears throat> mean neighborhood outcomes, which were not um, found to be associated compared to the MSM models, which were found to be associated after the 20% neighborhood poverty threshold. So we see that <clears throat> between zero and 20% neighborhood poverty, that increase probably has a negligible um, effect on, on, on mortality risk. But once you increase 20% neighborhood poverty threshold level, then it increases rather dramatically. And this is pretty consistent in the sociology literature where they, they, they see a very big difference between um, a neighborhood that has 0 to 20% poverty versus 22 and above. Because usually when you categorize it as binary, um, high poverty is usually... Um, defined as 20% or above neighbor poverty. Um, and that our sensitive analysis indicate that the MSM estimates for average neighbor poverty are moderately robust to unobserved confounding or heterogeneity. So <clears throat> income correlation levels okay, but education not so much. So um, future directions of study, the study was actually um, funded by an R21 grant, um, and we wanted to extend it to an R01. So we wanted to um, also measure a, a composite measure of disadvantage, but also affluence, and also examine other health outcome measures, including BMI and health behaviors, smoking, alcohol. Um, and also try to assess some of the moderating, possible moderating effects of, of um, race or education on the relationship between your context um, and health. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that so we started measuring nearby contacts in adulthood. So at baseline, we accounted for a lot of things. We, so we, we basically negated all the childhood impact in nearby contacts on education because we controlled for education at baseline. I think that's a very um, a strong um, pathway through which um, nearby contacts affects a lot of outcomes. And so what we want to do is to expand this time frame to include or start with childhood exposure or neighborhood context to so account for the neighborhood impacts of education and then, you know, how education affects health onwards. And that's for an R01 study. So um, acknowledgments of my collaborators, Lou Wong and Mike Elliott, who are biostatisticians at Michigan and Anna Diaru. Um, who um, just became chair of EPI department at Michigan. Great. And that's it. Any questions? Alrighty. <laughs> I thought I made a pretty good time frame. I know it, it was very heavy in the methods. Um, 
So if there's any clarification, yes, anyone? Oh yeah, yeah. So we we actually did a keep explain model um, as a preliminary thing, try to decide how to specify neighbor context. And this wasn't the only way we, we specified neighbor context. So we did a linear specification, which was also significant but attenuated. Um, and we did various thresholds, um, and we just decided on a twenty percent um, not point because it, it was. In the actual um, data analysis, it sort of indicated there was an inflection point around 15%, but we didn't want to data mine, um, so we wanted to um, base a lot of our, uh, most of our stuff more on the literature um, than just the actual what we had in our particular study sample. The original neighborhoods are communities. Or 1968. 1968. Where did the data come from? I'm sorry. Where did the data? Oh, so we we define neighborhoods as census tracts. So they're administrative data. So it comes from the decennial census. So the percent of poor comes from the census. The proportion of poor in that census tract, and that we merge into the PSID data set by tracked IDs, because we know where they live. So the proportion poor in our neighborhoods includes everyone in the area, not only those who were respondents in the survey. So Does that answer you? kind of people who migrate, who change, you know, because you use the 1990 sensors, 2000 sensors, and then afterwards, like a ACS, you have a little bit more closer, you know, time periods. So how you early time, it seems like you know, your estimates of neighborhood is a little bit more crude. Well, there's two things. One is just a measurement of neighborhood poverty between the decennial census. And we use linear interpolation because we, don't, so we just don't have data on, on those things. But the issue of people who, who move to different types of neighborhoods, yes. we have where they live every single time point. So, so we have where they live, and we just connect it to the neighborhood poverty measure. Yes. Even between that, you know, intervening. Yes. Well, between the decennial census. Okay. We have, we have addresses for every single interview. Right. Right. But the people, how about your interview is now coming like a very frequent people moving in between that period of time. How I'm sorry? I mean, people move between your interview times. Right. So then that would be... Um, that would be shown in the next time period in the interview, right? So if you, if so, if 1991, you know where they live, and if they moved, you know, in mid 1991, 1992, when you measure them or when you survey again, you know that they moved between 1990 and 1992. Yeah, I think that's fine. Okay. <laughs> between? Oh, you mean between? That's true, hypothetically, but I don't think that's a very big yeah. sample <laughs> for those who yeah. move three times within a course of a year, for example. So I don't, I don't think that's a, a big issue. If our time periods were, I agree with you, if the time periods were longer, like for every single five years, then it would be perhaps not, I mean, still, I mean, not that big of an issue, but um, more of a concern than if we did it for every other year. Because that would probably only really matter if they're moving into different types of tracks, right? Like in terms of moving from a low poverty to a high poverty or high poverty to a low poverty. Right. If they're just moving from high poverty to high right. poverty, you should you would assume the same. Right. And I mean, but that's not that's not unique to neighbor neighborhoods, right? I mean, you still have that same issue for SES. They could have been unemployed 
for the time period between their survey um, measures and then become employed again, employed, employed, employed. But you only, you only assess them when they're employed. Um, so there's always measurement issues um, in observational studies. Yes? Um, in trying to define neighborhoods using census data, how do you decide whether to use um, data at the tract level versus block level? <clears throat> um, it, sure. Um, there's a whole literature on that in terms of what, what level um, is, more, is most appropriate. And obviously, none of those uh, is the most appropriate because we don't define our neighborhoods based on census tract boundaries or, 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 or block group um, boundaries. Um, it depends, I think, on your outcome measure. Um, it depends on what you're trying to assess. Um, and they've, they, they've done some comparison studies uh, with respect to block groups and census tracts, and they found there are bigger effects in census tracts. Um, but I just, I, I really didn't think about it because that was the data that's available at the tract level, um, and that is the most frequently used um, level in terms of neighborhood um, effects on, on various outcomes. Sure. Um, larger is always better. <laughs> um, I've seen studies that have used quite um, sample size that's quite a bit smaller um, than what we're using now. I think the issue is not necessarily the sample size um, in terms of, of marginal structural modeling, but the issue is um, the influences of prior neighborhood context on the mediating time varying factors. Um, because if they don't influence that much in your time period of study, then you're not going to see that much of a difference between your naive estimates and your MSM estimates. So I think that's more, because I've, I've seen um, Samson um, um, wrote a paper that only used three time points. Um, and I think in three or four years for childhood, um, poverty, neighborhood poverty and educational outcomes. And he found um, significant effect estimates, which I was pretty surprised um, about. Can you remind me how old the books were when they enrolled in the CSID? Um, when they enrolled? So they, um, they were assessed since birth, this cohort, because the PSID started in 1968. So, but in this time frame of study, at the at baseline, um, around 45, I think it was, at baseline, on average. Um, so the minimum age was 18, um, and all the way up until um, whatever, I think around 90s or something. So you're saying that this is second-generation second data from CSID? Yes, okay. yeah. And so they would have been 18 to what? 18 to like the 90s, around 90s. Because so they started in 1968, and it's not just like one generation. We're not just following one cohort generation. We're just there. People are, are aging, and people are being um, added onto the PSID. So, so it's just a representative sample at that time period. So, so in marginal structure modeling, um, it's the population average. Mm -hmm. That's the marginal aspect of, of the estimates. So it it just averages the effects across the distributions of age. Um, so you're right in the sense of some of these people are a lot older at baseline, and you know what we may be measuring may be true, but we may not be really measuring it at the actual time period of our study. It may be because of their exposures during childhood um, that may be impacting the mortality risk in our time period of study. And that's just because we, we are not, we're not controlling for 
all the things that we can't control for at baseline. Ideally, what we wanted to do was you know, <clears throat> negate all the neighborhood impacts on health at baseline. And that's why we controlled for a lot of health status. So we controlled for all the SES measures. Um, and then we were defining the time period of exposure from 1993 to 2007 or to, until death. That's, that's what we, I, we want in our ideal model, and that's what we're trying to get at. But due to measurement issues, you know, due to mismodel specifications, I think there's some residuals, you know, coming through in terms of our effect estimates. Is that? Yeah, I'm still after, it may just be that I need to think about it more, but why, um, it seems like there are very different reasons that 18-year-olds die than 40-year-olds yes. die than 93-year-olds die. Yes, and, and you can possibly um, investigate that in terms of modifying um, age groups aspects of and see if there's there's differences in the effects of estimates at baseline in terms of age um, you know in, in all um, analyses whether it is observational analyses or whether it's random assignment there's also a set of assumptions embedded in, in your models and just to reduce the complexities um, of this very complex relationship and you know this is just a reduced form of what we think is the major you know, um, pathways, I guess. So, Phoenix, um, I know you, someplace you present neighborhood education, too. There's a bunch of, you know, when you link it with the census tract data, you have a bunch of census tract characteristics. So how you determine only pick the, you know, poverty, I know that's your question, but you might also pick, you know, neighborhood racial composition. Sure. Or, you know, education, or mm -hmm. you might develop some, like, an index. Right. You know, so what's your... So that was part of our, our um, uh, future directions <laughs> in, in terms of a neighborhood disadvantage index. Um, I, I picked neighborhood poverty for um, several reasons. The first reason was that <clears throat> it's a lot of history in the neighborhood context literature and using neighborhood poverty, so a lot of comparisons can be made. Um, two, um, it's, it's looking at it from a bigger picture because it's a broader picture. Because neighbor part is not, you know, um, if you give everyone, you know, X amount of money so that they're above the, the poverty threshold, it's not really going to change the context of the neighborhoods, right? So it's not a literal sense in terms of poverty level, but it's it's the correlates of neighbor poverty um, in the environment in which these people reside in, and you know, it's, it's sort of ambiguous in a sense, um, but it also allows us to measure the overall impact of disadvantage on, on mortality versus focusing on a mechanism that, you know, may impact one outcome, you know, <coughs> um, at one level and another outcome at a different level. But then you tease, can you kind of tease apart and divide that whole overall impact on neighborhoods um, that way, I think. Um, and this is just more of a broader, more composite way to look at the overall neighborhood context and how it affects a certain health outcome. Uh, another question is when you uh, do your analysis, because you like to sort of, you know, talk about conceptual framework and then you present the results. Mm -hmm. So something in the middle, like when you do modeling, you still have individual income level, those things. So do you actually, you know, adjust for, you know, do multi-level analysis and then, you know, adjust for potential correlation, people living in the same census tract? Do you do those things? Um, so... So, so, so there we do have measures at the individual of income. Yes. So, you, you, so you're sort of worried about sort of the bias because the neighborhood poverty level is a function of the individual income of, yeah, of, of one person. Two one oh, so the multi-level structure. Okay, so, yeah. <clears throat> um, so we didn't we didn't account for the multi-level structure, and this because. Um, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of respondents in the same neighborhood tracks. There's maximum two, I think, because PSID originally was sampled as a cluster um, <clears throat> sampling structure where they're clustered to different neighborhoods. But since it's been such a long time 
that people moved out and were spread apart across the nation, there's really not a lot of clustering. So in a sense, even though this is um, multi-level conceptually, it's not multi-level data-wise that we would have to be worried about. <laughs> okay. Um, any other questions? All right. Thank you very much for coming.